Right as I was leaving to come teach this retreat, the phone rang. You know how that goes when you're leaving your house, and of course what happens, the phone rings. So the phone rang, and it was a good friend of mine. And she said, oh, Heather, I'm so excited that you're still there. I know you're going off to um, teach this retreat, and I have a story for you. And she's been in recovery for some time. And she wanted to make sure that my that I knew that my friend in the program, who I'll call Dan because I want to really protect his anonymity. I didn't get permission from him to say this, so I only know him by his first name, and it isn't Dan, but we'll call him Dan. And she wanted to make sure that I knew that Dan's health wasn't so good. And Dan is now 85 years old and has been in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous since he was 50. So he's got 35 years, you know. And this is a man who, no matter what meeting you go to, no matter what time, no matter what place in the county where he lives, he is there and has been there, well, I can only speak for 18 years myself. But every meeting, always there to give a phone number, always there to give a hug sponsored more people than I will probably ever sponsor if I stay sober until I'm 85 years old, you know. Um, Really an elder. This health's not so good. She said, so I went to a meeting to go find him. I knew I could go to any meeting, and I did, and there he was. And somebody handed me the big book at the beginning of the meeting. This was my friend speaking, she said, and they asked her to read How It Works, And so she was looking over how it works with Dan and just kind of taking it in the same way we did last night, you know, when it was read. Just taking it in a moment together. And um, Dan looked at my friend and he said, do you think this program works? (laughs) (laughs) And my friend who has some time and has really done her work thought about it and looked at him and said, yeah, I think it works. And then she looked at him and she said, do you think the program works, Dan? And he paused and he thought about it. And what he said was, you know, I don't know. He said, I don't know if this program works. And then he paused again. And he thought some more. And he looked at her and he said, I know one day at a time works. Does the program work? This is somebody that has committed his entire life every day to the program in all ways. I don't know if the program works. I know one day at a time works. I was like, wow. And I feel very grateful to my friend for telling me that story. You know, the stories come at the perfect time. And I feel very grateful to Dan for offering me that teaching. And I've been just sitting with that the whole retreat. And I could probably give another 15 minutes on my reflections on that statement. But I'd much rather actually let you uh, do your own reflection on what that means for you. I don't know. But I know one day at a time works. You know, the humility and the wisdom in that statement. 
Then on the other end of the scale, I have my dear friend and student, Derek, who has given me permission to say his name and has also given me permission to read a poem that he wrote. And Derek is now 19 years old and has been in recovery from drug addiction and alcoholism, I think now for, for two years. And he wrote this when he was one year clean and sober. He said, I spent a lot of time trying to be offensive, a lot of time trying to be defensive. But who was offended and who was I defending? When you start to see nothing unordinary in all the eyes, when you start to see that it is only yourself, there's a whole lot less to fight against. A whole lot less to fight against. So, the wisdom of the young, you know, in program and years, the wisdom of the elders in program and in years. And I have so much gratitude for that whole range. So I really, um, you know, offer these reflections out of respect for the whole range, whether it's your first day in, whether you're younger, whether you've been in for 20 years, your age might be older. So much wisdom. And what I want to talk about tonight is humility as a path of practice. And I also think about humility as not just the path of practice, but the fruit of practice, the gift that practice offers, both on the spiritual path and the 12-step path. And I have to say that I tend to talk about where my own edges are. And for me, humility has been a consistent marker for where I am or where I'm not in terms of my program uh, and the spiritual path. So the amount of times that you know, I've burned through some kind of pride or guilt or resentment or thinking I was better or thinking I was the worst thing that ever happened and burned through it, you know, only to go up to a sponsor or a mentor or something and go, I got it. I got humility. I finally understand. And then six months later, it's like, boom, the whole purification starts again. Oh, wow, now I understand humility. And I love humility as a teacher that way, that it just keeps going deeper and deeper and deeper. Even just this last month, some of the teachings that I've had around humility and just understanding that everyone is living their own life, you know, in their own path. And even when they do things that are, like, so ridiculously unskillful, I just don't even know how to, like, respond to it. It's like, oh, you know, I'm no better and no worse than that, ever. Because it's all about conditions. It's all about the conditions that set that whole experiment into play, and somebody hit the the play button and the whole thing went off. Could happen to you, could happen to me, could happen to them. Human, you know. There's this one teacher that said that this meditation practice called it one insult after another. And I love that. You know, it's like, oh, great, you know. This thing just insulted me again. I belong here. Fabulous, you know. 
So the seventh step here, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. For some reason, I was always most interested in that first word. I just felt like if I could deepen my understanding of that first word, humbly, the whole rest of it would be revealed. And for me, there was a lot of faith that that was true. And so, thus the investigation. We've been talking a lot during this retreat, all three of us, about this teaching of the middle way. And I wanted to bring it in directly from the Buddhist literature and read it to you so you could take it in. And, you know, just like the 12-step literature, it's formal language, and we have different relationships to formal language, whether it's in the Buddhist canon or the 12-step canon. So, you know, just take in your relationship to the language as well as to the teaching. And I think it's really poignant that this teaching on the middle way is called the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. And it was really the first formal teaching that the Buddha gave after he had his spiritual awakening. And I always think about the fact that he could have said anything at his first teaching, you know, anything about his understanding. And that this was what he chose to say. So this is what he said. There, oh, well, I want to just contextualize. There's this first line, uh, one who has gone forth. So he's speaking to a group of monks, but really gone forth. I mean, honestly, I can't imagine a more powerful going forth than when we first <coughs> enter the rooms. We have gone forth, okay? So this applies to everyone here. Um, there are these two extremes that ought not to be cultivated by one who has gone forth. What two? Well, there is devotion to the pursuit of pleasure and sensual desires, which is low, coarse, ignoble, and harmful. And there is devotion to self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and harmful. But there is this middle way, which avoids both of these extremes. It gives vision, it gives knowledge, and it leads to peace. So somewhere in between the addiction to take in more and more and more so I'll be okay, so I'll be happy, and the denying myself everything so that I'll be happy, there's this middle way that gives vision, knowledge, and leads to peace. So it's that point that John was talking about this morning that only each of us can find for ourselves, that no one can give to you, to me. Um, But it's somewhere in between, I think about these extremes of being entranced with things and avoiding things, somewhere in between the pride and the guilt. You know, somewhere outside the box of our self-absorption, the self-centeredness, I think of it as the addiction to me. Ah, me. The addiction to me. It's all about me, right? I mean, we all rock around in these bubbles, and it's, it's all about us all the time. Uh, and then we, you know, then we don't understand why everyone else isn't with the me program. Why don't they understand? You know, well, because they're obsessed with their me program. <laughs> you know, it's just the way it is. So the teaching of the middle path, um, 
this middle way is also this eightfold path that Kevin was speaking about last night. You know, this progression, different ways of progressing through ethical conduct, through the meditation practice itself, and then through establishing a kind of wisdom that can lead to a spiritual awakening, which we then use to benefit others. So they're so similar, as he was speaking about. I continue to have kind of a favorite quote that's a simple version of the middle path, and it's by one of my teachers, Ajahn Sumedho, who's the abbot of a monastery in England. He says this, We tend to create personalities out of our thoughts, which are based on extremes, which makes us neurotic. I mean, we know this, right? (laughs) But this is a practice of not going to extremes. Extremes of, I want this, I don't want that. Not making problems out of things. Not making problems out of things. So maybe that's like the Buddhist version of not going looking for trouble. (laughs) Not making problems out of things. So humility, what is it? My favorite definition of humility right now is from Overeaters Anonymous 12 and 12. And in it, it says, humility is an awareness of who we really are today and a willingness to become all that we can be. Genuine humility brings an end to the feelings of inadequacy, the self-absorption, the status-seeking. Humility places us neither above nor below other people on some imagined ladder of self-worth. It places us exactly where we belong, on equal footing with our fellow beings and in harmony with God. I was talking to somebody a few years ago, I still remember this conversation about why humility, why humility is important. And they said something that kind of confused me at the time, but as I reflected on it, became very clear what they were talking about. And he said to me, why humility? Humility because every direction you turn, there's fire. So we need humility. And when I thought about how this fits in with the Dharma teachings, there's these teachings um, about the fires, about the fires of greed, about the fires of hatred, and about the fires of delusion. You know, and in how it works, it talks about um, how we feel burned up with resentment and anger. You know, we burn. It's a burning. It was really interesting. Just a few days ago, there was this huge resentment that arose in me. Like, honestly, larger than anything I can remember in several years. And it was so painful. And... um, I really realized after it was over, it was just kind of coming to teach me about this talk. You know, because I just hadn't burned with a resentment that strong in long enough that I actually needed that in order to really, like, be grounded in the reality of how painful this is. Um, It's fire. 
You know, and humility is a way out of the fire, but I think sometimes we actually have to step into the fire and burn until only our ashes remain. And then the phoenix, you know, the phoenix of not who we want to be, not who we wish we were, not the personality that we create and present that everyone thinks we are, but who we actually are, not better, not worse than anyone else. That's the phoenix that rises out of the ashes of that burning. It's painful, but it's beautiful. So we go through these cycles of inflation and deflation, and it's constant. I just constantly remind myself when this whole process is fluctuating. It's like, oh, Heather, welcome to the human race. You know, you belong. You're totally inflated. You know, whoa, I already went over to deflation. How did that happen? And it just swings, and it's like a pendulum. You know, one side of the pendulum is how great we are. The other side of the pendulum were, you know, the worst thing that ever happened to anybody, and we should just die now. Uh, you know, it's, it's a reality, and it just swings. And the thing is, if you look at these two extremes, right, they have intense charge. We're really interested in them. They're interesting. They're not the boring story. So now I'm going to tell you the boring story (laughs) that I referred to before the talk started. So these are the interesting stories about how great I am, how terrible I am. But check this out, right? If there's a pendulum and it's swinging between these two extremes, there is so much space here. There's like nothing but space. What is this space? Well, you know, the space... It's the space in between the charges. It's the space in between the, ooh, that's interesting. I'm going to develop a mental obsession over it. And it's the place where humility lives and where peace lives. And if you look at how a pendulum works, once you start swinging it, it goes, right? Actually, let me see here. I'll show you. Probably not everyone can see this, but enough people can. So a pendulum, what does it do? If I swing it this way, it's automatically, I can't really stop it from going over here. You know, it's hard. So if I'm in the best thing that ever happened moment and I swing it, you know, guaranteed something's going to happen in the mind that goes into, oh, but now they're better than me. I'm terrible. But it's like, look what happens. It just swings. It has like a thing of its own and it keeps going. If you watch this thing, you're going to get dizzy and confused and tired. Okay, that is the nature of our personality construct. We get all spun out, dizzy, confused, and exhausted. It's exhausting, you know? But what's hard to see is, oh, there's this huge swing in between the charges, and we miss it. Like, there's all this room in here. There's all this space that we miss because it's not interesting. Humility. Humility. I really love the third step prayer and my favorite line from it. I really loved it that somebody wrote on their interview sheet that it, like the line from the third step prayer that's one of my favorites and I think I remember it kind of inspired them to be here so I wanted to weave it into the talk. 
And it's release me from the bondage of self. You know, release me from the bondage of self. And when I think about that in terms of humility, I think of humility as being like this process of little deaths. And I think that what humility asks us to do, it asks us to die to who we thought we were and to who we actually are. The greatness and the smallness. And there's this teaching from Ajahn Chah, who was one of the great forest meditation masters from Thailand. And he would give this teaching talking about um, to die before we die. And we all know this because we've all died a thousand times. We're not cats, you know, we're way beyond nine lives. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've died before we got here and all the things that we did and all the deaths. And then we kind of keep dying. You know, we keep dying to who we think we are, who we think we have to be to keep it together and, and to actually who we are. And who we are holds this basic goodness and it holds every single thing that's ever happened to us and all the patterns that have been built out of that. You know, both. So I was reflecting on this question about why is it so hard to take an honest look at who we really are and who we could become? You know? Like... Why might we want to keep our shortcomings? Because yeah. we're asked to, you know, to have them removed, but why might we want to keep them? And so I've become really passionate about the process of honoring our character defects, so-called. And the reason that it became a passion for me was realizing more and more deeply that character defects have actually saved our lives. They saved our lives when we didn't have the tool chest that we have now. You know? We didn't have those tools. We didn't have the resources we have now. And so we developed all these defensive and offensive systems, the way Derek was talking about, to save our lives. And if we hadn't done that, we might not be here. So they may not serve us now, but they deserve a huge bow of respect, you know, and not the rejection of, oh, you know, this problem of mine. It was just the best we could do at the time, you know. Maybe we're five years old when we developed that thing and then cultivated it all the way through our lives, you know. It's like respecting where we came from. What happens, though, of course, is that they become habits, and we feed them with our thoughts and our attention and uh, continue feeding them through our actions, and then things work out, and we go, oh, yeah, that's a workable strategy. That worked out, and then we keep going and going and going, and, you know, that's where we might need to make some different choices. There's this quote from Pema Chodron that I really like. Trying to fix ourselves is not helpful. Let me read that again. <laughs> Trying to fix ourselves is not helpful. Here's why, according to her. (laughs) It implies struggle and self-denigration. Denigrating ourselves is probably the major way that we cover our bodhicitta. And bodhicitta is the awakeness of our mind and heart. So what I take her to be saying is, don't make a problem out of things, like Ajahn Sumedho said. 
And uh, it doesn't have to become like a compelling me project to try to fix it. It's okay. It's okay to be human. And then there's there's this potential of the awakeness, this bodhicitta, awakeness of mind-heart that's already there. You know, I love it that no matter, you know, when I said the welcome the first night, you're probably all half asleep because most of you are coming from different time zones. But I said, you know, to welcome you no matter what you've done or have not done. You know, no matter what you've done or have not done, that there's regret about, this bodhicitta, this awakeness, this basic goodness cannot actually be killed no matter what we've done or haven't done. Again, that's actually something for you to look and see for yourself. You know, that's not to take my word for it. So I want to talk about some different ways that we can work with the so-called shortcomings, the incompletenesses in us, and just a, a bunch of different kind of areas. And the first thing I want to talk about is the fear. Do I even need to say anything more? I mean, we all know it. It's a good friend, the fear. In the big book, in the fourth step, it says, the short word, fear, somehow touches about every aspect of our lives. So a constant companion Great, you know, welcome, come on in. This great quote about fear from the poet uh, Rilke. These fears that fell to my lot out of every day stirred a hundred other fears. And they stood up in me, against me, and they agreed among themselves. (laughs) And I couldn't get beyond them. In striving to form them, I came to work creatively on them. And instead of making them into things of my will, I only gave them a life of their own, which they turned against me. They're slippery, these fears. So how to make friends with fear? And I don't say that lightly. And I don't say it in that cheesy way of, Oh, it's okay. I'm going to make friends with my fear. Forget that. You know. <laughs> my first long retreat started out as a three-week retreat and turned into a six-week retreat because of that extreme nature in me, of course. You know, day five, I went into my teachers and said, So, I'm staying. What do I have to do? And they looked at me and they're like, You've only done one retreat and you're 23 years old. And I'm like, Well... I'm staying, what do I need to do? (laughs) And um, so I stayed. Well, I was supposed to stay there for six weeks, and I, or three weeks, and I stayed for six. Sure enough, right around week three, I got a huge, huge fear attack, and uh, I spent most of my days, for a few days, this is true confessions time, down in room two where Kevin is giving his interviews in the closet. I had to be sure that I knew when the teachers were giving their interviews so I could leave the closet and get out so that I wasn't found in the closet. I was terrified. 
You know, I was so scared that I needed a little box and I needed the door shut and I needed to lock the door of the interview room. You know? <coughs> the fear is deep and it's pervasive. You know, and sometimes it really comes in and takes us over. The interesting thing is, even though I didn't really, I hadn't sat a lot of retreats or anything, I was able to be there in that closet and really hold myself. You know, on one level, it looked totally dysfunctional. Everyone else is in the meditation hall, and here's this yogi in the closet, you know. Uh, Oh... It's like that. It's so humbling. I've actually never told this story before in a Dharma talk. Um, But what happened as I sat there hour after hour and held myself was uh, there was this kindness that kind of came in despite myself. And it's this metta practice that John has been teaching. And he talked about it as an antidote to fear. It really is. Uh, traditionally it is, and you see how the fear starts to fall away. So the metta was one really huge help. The other really huge help was the naming practice that we've been teaching, the mental noting practice, but it came in in kind of an interesting way, and I'm really well known for kind of, uh, what, creative mental notes. You know, Traditionally you're supposed to say things like lifting and moving and placing and, you know, in, out... That's all great. I've done a ton of that, but creativity uh, cannot be stopped in me during meditation. So during the day, for a few days, I'd be in the closet. And at night, I was very, very passionate about this practice. I was in love. And I really just wanted to, to have the best use of my time. It felt so precious. And so I'd stay up half the night meditating or just shaking in fear. Um, but I just, I really wanted to just practice until I had no more energy left. So I would be down there in the meditation hall and it'd be pitch black and there's no one in there. Everyone went to bed. It's like two o'clock in the morning and the waves of fear would just come. They'd just come and, uh, take me over. You know, at some point somebody gave the teaching about Mara. And some of you, I'm sure, are, uh, well, everyone's good friends with Mara. Some of you know him by name. Others of you will now learn to know him by name. Mara is the kind of demonic energy or force in the Buddhist canon. And Mara was the one when Siddhartha was sitting under the tree uh, and said, you know, true extreme style, I will not get up underneath this Bodhi tree until I either become fully enlightened or die, you know. We can relate to that. (laughs) So, and Mara came and visited the Buddha and came in all these different forms, came in lust, came in fear, came in doubt, all these forms. And what the Buddha would say each time Mara's armies would attack is, I see you, Mara. I see you, Mara. And so I'd heard that story and I was down there. I was just, you know... Fear, there's like a heart component of fear, but there's a physical component of fear, and it's what makes it so powerful. So I had both components going on. And uh, all of a sudden, I just, out of nowhere, this thought arose, oh, Mara, I see you. 
I see you, you know. Mara was clearly over my right shoulder because my right shoulder, I remember, was killing me at the time. And, you know, they're always behind you. They never, like, come out and, well, every once in a while they do. But when they're sneaking up behind you, it's particularly scary. You know what I mean, right? Whatever it is that's sneaking up behind you in your heart. So that became my mental note, and I must have said it a hundred times. So I was sitting down there, I see you, Mara, I'm not getting up off this seat, period. And after about an hour, the fear started to subside. There was still a little bit, and I was totally exhausted. And I just made the decision to get up and go to bed. I said, you know, Mara, I see you, and um, I'm going to get up and go to bed now, and um, you're welcome to come with me, and we're just, we're going to go rest, and so we went and we rested, and I woke up the next morning, and there was Mara, you know, curled up beside me here. But all of a sudden, I developed this relationship where I knew how to call the fear by name. I see you, Mara. And it was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I actually have such deep love and respect for the energy of fear moving through these days, whether it's here in me or sitting with one of you. So much respect. So the naming practice, the metta practice. It's another great quote by Rilke. He says, our deepest fears are like dragons protecting our deepest treasure. Dragons. So that's one piece, the fear. Another piece is a teaching that It's called the five hindrances to practice. Like the character defects, I say the five so-called hindrances because I don't buy it at all. In fact, I've renamed them the five wake-up calls because hindrances imply a problem, and wake-up calls means, oh, you know, I can be available for something new. So I call them the five wake-up calls. And I just want to call them by name, so in case you've forgotten them or have never heard them, it's really good to know that if you experience these, in your meditation or while you're here on retreat, it's a clear indicator that you're human. Uh, so you can just welcome them, welcome yourself. You know, it means that uh, you're not 100% enlightened and, you know, no need to make a problem out of that. <laughs> so here's who they are, the parade. First in the parade is greed, you know, or wanting or lust, you know, the, the addiction, We know this one. I probably don't need to say anything more about it, right? Should I? A little bit? (laughs) Just in case we forgot. So the addiction. And the interesting thing in terms of antidotes for that, the the antidotes for I want, somebody actually named it in an interview the other day. One of the greatest insights to work with the I want anything, just fill in the blank, is noticing the truth of change. And somebody was talking about this. They were saying, I I won't quote them perfectly, but it it struck me that they were just saying, well, you know, I know that it's going to change. It could get better. It could get worse. You know, it it could stay the same for a while, but I know it's going to change. It's like, oh, if we know that it's going to change, then we don't have to gratify that desire right now. You know, because we already know that even if we get it, it's going to change. It's going to leave. We're going to want something different. Uh, The sun's going to come out. I don't know. Something will happen. And that was really what this person was talking about. 
hard thing to remember, huh? You know, in the moment of a gripping mental obsession around an addiction, oh, it'll change. But sometimes we have those moments of clarity and to respect them and to use them. So the flip side of that is the aversion. You know, there's the I want, then there's the I don't want. I hate it. Hate these diets. (laughs) So it's great. You know, it doesn't matter what the object is. It's working with the energies. And that way we can be free. Um, So with the I don't want it, interestingly enough, the loving kindness practice or metta practice is another great antidote. You know, because it's like when we're pushing part of our self away, you know, oh, I don't want you shame. It's like, oh, you know, may I be peaceful in this moment with this shame. Or when it becomes about another. Oh, my work meditation, um, you know, somebody came in and, and did this, this, and this, you know, and I don't like it. Of course. And it's like, oh, yeah, and, huh, you know, may I be well, may they be well. I'm sure I've done something that's annoyed someone else at some point in my life, probably. You know, can we all be in this together? Then there's the sleepiness, restlessness uh, dyad. (laughs) So sleepiness, Kevin spoke about really, really beautifully the other morning in terms of how it catches us up and how to get out of it. So... I won't speak so much about that. Um, But the restlessness is the part of ourselves, I call it the part of myself that is meditating and the restlessness comes and I'm just doing the best I can not to get up and run out of the hall screaming. (laughs) You know, if I can just avoid getting up and running out of the hall screaming, I got an A plus for that meditation. You know, restlessness. Um, And there's restlessness of body and restlessness of mind. Of mind, it's the incessant stream of thoughts. It just goes on and on and on and on. And of body, it tends to be like uplifting or kind of, um, what's, well, you see what I'm doing. I don't know what the word for what I'm doing is, but it's vibration. Yeah, there we go. Uh, tingly, you know, want to get up off your seat and do a little dance energy. Uh, so it's part of it, you know? And these energies come and go, and just to know, it's okay if you have them. It just means you're a human being living a life, and they're workable. So how to work with that? Honestly, first line of defense is just a deeper breath, because it brings us back into the body. Just like, oh, okay, you know, it just feels really intense in here right now. And sometimes I like to open my eyes and look around the room, And notice this really basic thing that's easily missed, which is there's actually enough air in the room to breathe with whatever energy is there. So it's like, okay, there's enough air in the room to be with this. Okay, you know, just be with it with one more breath, the whole one breath at a time thing. And then another thing that's really helpful is to then actually see if you can focus in your field a little bit more. So you take that deeper breath. You notice there's enough air in the room. And then like, okay, can I just count the next 10 breaths? 
and like just bring it in a little bit closer, a little closer to direct experience because restless energy just gets really big. And, and just to like give it a little bit of container can really help. So then the last wake-up call is doubt. And we all know how dangerous doubt is. You know, it's interesting when I teach regular retreats, I say that doubt is the one where you have your car keys in the hand and you're going out to your car and, and you don't even you know, know how you got down there because you're already leaving because there was a doubt attack and you didn't see it, so you're out of here. I mean, th- that's hard. But compared to what we deal with, I mean, what happens when we have a doubt attack, you know? The food's in your hand or the bottle's in your hand or whatever it is. I mean, it's a life or death issue. So I really respect this so-called hindrance. You know, and the way it comes out is I'm not doing it right. You're not doing it right. You know, I, I'm, I'm not sure that I uh, have faith in the teachings or the teacher or the center or, you know, take your pick. And they come. And the antidote, of course, no surprise to us, is faith. You know? And again, I think in this culture, we have a step up on working with this hindrance because we actually have a huge investment in cultivating faith. Where culturally, in this culture, for a lot of people, there's a lot of deep issues with faith. And so it's just kind of avoided we don't have the convenience of avoiding it even if we have issues. So we work with it. You know, we work with cultivating that trust where we can. And maybe it's not across the board. Maybe it's just this much. You know, but we do it. We do the hard work. So I want to read you a great quote from Tenzin Palmo. And Tenzin Palmo is an English woman who's been a nun for most of her life And she's best known for spending 12 years on retreat in a cave at 13,000 feet in the Himalayas. Uh, She actually came out once a year to get supplies and talk to her teacher, but she pretty much lived up there for 12 years. And here's what she has to say about attitude of mind towards these types of uh, so-called hindrances. She says, If we have an experience and we see it as an obstacle then it is an obstacle. If we see it as an opportunity, then it's an opportunity. Simple. Not easy. So it's pointing to that choice point, that choice of is it an obstacle or is it an opportunity? So another set of tools for the toolbox here. Somebody was asking about how to work with strong emotions this morning, and it's a great question. And this particular set of tools I'm becoming more and more interested in, both in my own practice and in teaching in the last years. So I just want to offer it here as something you can play with or not as you wish. And it's an acronym, which I think is helpful because it just helps me remember. 
Um, so, you know, in our tradition we got halt, and in the Dharma tradition we have rain. So rain stands for recognize, accept, investigate, and non-identification. And it's great for working with hindrances, for working with strong emotions, for working with uh, body struggle, otherwise known as pain. All kinds of things. So the recognized part is the naming practice that we're teaching here. Seeing what's true when it's happening. It sounds so obvious and it's so hard, huh? I mean, it should be pretty obvious when we're feeling sad that we're feeling sad, but... Sometimes it gets hidden behind the sleepiness. Things aren't always what they appear. So to recognize what's true, call it by name. I know some of you have kids, and I bet some of you work with kids, and you notice how when you call a child by name, they respond. But if you just sort of say, like, hey, you, or you don't know their name, or you've forgotten their name, you just don't have that same connection. I think it's the same with our internal energies and states. You know, they just need to be called by name. It's a way of welcoming. So recognize. Then there's this thing about accept. In the OA 12 and 12, it says, Real humility about our character defects carries with it acceptance. We accept that each character defect, as painful as it may be, is a part of who we are is a part of who we are. So I think about this in terms of a double accept. It's kind of a two-pronged thing. So let's say that shame is arising. That's a fun one. Don't you want that to come into your meditation? Like, oh, I haven't had shame yet today. Come on in. Now, we'll go back to that not looking for trouble thing. (laughs) So shame came. Ah, and... We noticed it. We actually caught what it was, shame. Okay? So we recognized it. Then there's acceptance. It's like acceptance that, oh, yeah, shame is a part of who I am, of who we are. That's the first level of accept. Okay? But there's a second level. And the second level is accepting the part of ourselves that hates that shame and wants it to go away. Because what I see is a lot of times we can do this bypass where we go, oh, you know, it's okay if this is here or this is happening. I, I know it's good for me in the end or, you know, what, or, um, you know, I know as a good meditator I should just accept everything that comes or whatever it is, whatever our version of it is. And then we haven't validated the part of ourselves. And it's just like, no, I don't want to deal with this shame again. So then we accept that part too. Then we investigate. And actually, I loved that description of the walking meditation this morning in the Q&A. Because it was such a description of investigation. It's just like, when I'm doing the turn, is it two and a half steps or three? There's this kind of childlike nature to investigating what's going on like really ordinary things this is the boring story again really ordinary things like how many steps does it take to turn or maybe less ordinary things like where does shame live in my body oh 
I'm hoping the shame lives out the door somewhere. I don't want to go check it out in my body, you know. I mean, it takes courage to investigate where shame lives in the body. But there's something there. And then there's this piece about non-identification. The best way that I like to put that is uh, not taking it so personally. Just not taking it so personally. We're all in this together. So say shame arises in you. Guaranteed, someone else in the room is either experiencing it now or will experience it later. That gets us out of the me show a little bit. A question I like to ask myself to remind myself of the non-identification piece. There's a big emotion that comes in. Usually there's a big storyline. You know, those two come together a lot of times. I just ask myself, is this the main event right now? You know, have I made this the main event? You know, what's the main event? It's like, oh, yeah, this is definitely a main event. Like, okay, this is the main event. And then it changes. And I was like, oh, it's not the main event anymore. And when it starts to get really interesting is when something big comes through and we have the sudden realization that even though there's these strong energies in the body and the motions are going berserk and, you know, it, it should be a main event, right? And then all of a sudden we look inside and it's like, Wow. There's enough space to hold this. It's not a main event. It's just energies passing through. It's like it's wild. Spy poet um, Parvati. Containing the world, we sit. Emptying out the worlds, we sit. Leaning forward, fear is felt. Leaning backward, staleness arises. In gratitude for the pain, we sit. All self-distinction seen as limiting, we sit. Allowing the 10,000 things their freedom, we receive freedom from them in return. And we sit. So the last piece I want to talk about, which I think is particularly interesting for our crowd, and it's about forming a relationship with our emotions, with our bodies, with our energies, with our stories, that's a relationship of of transformation instead of annihilation. You know, so that we don't have to kill any part of ourselves. It can all be here. Transformation instead of annihilation. And it's from the Tibetan tradition, and it's a teaching about feeding your demons. Okay? So it's a teaching from Lama Sultram Alioni, And she has a great book that just came out. So if you have interest in this, there is more. And I just want to read a little bit from it. So she says, 
When we obsess about food issues, long for the perfect partner, or crave a cigarette, we give our demons strength because we aren't really paying attention to the need underneath the desire. When we really pay attention and identify the deep call beneath the craving, we can learn to feed the real needs of the demon and not just indulge it or fight against it. Having been satisfied, it departs. Our demons get fatter if they are fought or, or ignored. And it's interesting, after ignored, it says in parentheses, which is also an active process. Ignoring as an active process. So our demons get fatter if they are fought or ignored because they feed on the energy of our struggle against them. This is the principle behind fully attending to and nurturing rather than fighting or ignoring our demons. So you get what it's talking about. It's an interesting analogy she uses. If you feed your daughter a DVD when she really needs love, she's not going to be satisfied. I mean, that's what we do, you know. It's like that young part of us inside has this deep call. Love me. See me. You know, let me play and be eccentric and be who I am. You know, and we feed it a DVD, we feed it some more food, we take another drink, we look for another partner, anything to just appease her for five minutes so that we can have some comfort of not dealing with the pain. That's just what we do. And what's interesting, of course, is that this book isn't particularly for addicts or alcoholics. This is a human condition. Uh, To me, the difference is that Somebody who doesn't in this life have the conditions of addiction or potential addiction operating, they have a lot more kind of choice and complacency available to them, you know? They can work with it a little and then take a break and go on vacation and come back to it 10 years later. If we do that, we're dead. We're dead, you know? And I think that's at the root of why when we're at meetings... People share over and over again and say, I'm grateful to be abstinent tonight. I'm so grateful to be sober tonight. You know, because we know. We know. So this possibility of really paying attention to the need underneath the desire. So the desire might be For food, the need underneath it might be that there's an abandonment issue around the food and there's this deep need to be seen. It's a very interesting investigation. But I think the key is the change in relationship, transformation instead of annihilation. I could not continue doing this practice if it meant that I had to kill part of myself in order to be here. Just how I feel. So this living in humility, you know, this living in the space in between the charges, this space that allows us to be who we are, You know, the bigness, the big, (laughs) 
the smallness. And I think what happens is then we can allow our hearts and our lives to run without interference. And without that interference of struggle, you know, of self-mortification or indulgence, to go back to the first teaching, uh, then humility starts to live more and more in our lives. I found this really interesting quote in The Best of Bill that so reminds me of the Buddhist teaching on the middle way. This is why I see humility for today as that safe and secure stance midway between these violent emotional extremes of guilt and pride. It is a quiet place where I can keep enough perspective and enough balance to take my next small step up the clearly marked road that points towards eternal values. Enough perspective, enough balance to take the next small step. Ordinary. Nothing flashy. Worth it. So I'll just close here with a quote that Dr. Bob kept on his desk. So I think to myself, if I'm Dr. Bob and I've got a desk, you know, and any of the literature can be on that desk, this is what was on the desk. Humility. Perpetual quietness of heart. It is to have no trouble. It is never to be fretted or vexed, irritable or sore, to wonder at nothing which is done to me, to feel nothing done against me. It is to be at rest when nobody praises me and when I'm blamed or despised. It is to have a blessed home in myself where I can go in and shut the door and kneel to my Father in secret and be at peace. As if in a deep sea of calmness when all around and about is seeming trouble. So, um, really deep appreciation for the kindness of your attention, and that's what I have to offer for your reflection. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.